Thank you for listening us. Listen. that might be the new that might be the cold open i deserve it i always speak way too fast and get tongue tied so it would be a very accurate cold open welcome to the east lansing insider it's wednesday october 28th and I'm Emily Joan Elliott here with Alice Drager and Andrew Graham. So I'll ask you both to say a quick hello to everyone. Hello, everybody. It's Andrew again. Uh, excited to be on the the second episode of the East Lansing Insider. I think we've got a a pretty good episode this week. Alice and this is Alice Drager, executive director and publisher of East Lansing Info. And I just want to tell you all. Payday is this week. We pay once a month at Eli, and it is such a joy taking your donations and being able to pay people like Andrew and Emily to do just a phenomenal job bringing the news to the people of East Lansing. So thank you for that. They are a joy to work with, and they are just terrific at the work they're doing for you. I'd be lying if the direct deposit wasn't one of the best days of the month. (laughs) I feel you on that, Andrew. We're going to segue now into doing our headline roundup. Uh, So our big headlines this week is that ELPD issued several citations over the weekend for violations of the public health orders. Namely, they were targeting student parties that were over the 25-person limit. On Monday evening, the study committee on police oversight met, but has yet to agree on a work plan. On Monday, it was a busy night. There also was the East Lansing Public School School Board approved its plan, which could allow for students to return to in-person instruction in January. And there was also a big bond story, but that's going to be part of a feature later on in this episode. Um, So I'm going to start by talking about this weekend's article we published on Monday, and it was a truly collaborative effort. I co-authored with Heather Brothers and Andrew and Alice contributed to reporting. So I wanted to ask first Andrew and then Alice, what were you up to this weekend and how were you contributing to the story we wound up publishing on Monday morning? And what were your takeaways from the weekend? Most students and most people I saw around East Lansing and downtown were outside in groups of five to 10, nothing unreasonable. I mean, I don't think we, we've learned maybe that small groups are responsible for the spread of COVID, but that those, those, that's what's legal, that's what's allowed, and that people gathering on their porch on game day, students, groups of eight, 10 people who live together in another house of people who live together, it's not that bad. But we saw a handful of larger parties, including one in particular that was quite massive just behind <clears throat> the Marriott Hotel downtown. And that one was just very clearly illegal and potentially spreading a lot of the virus. What I did on Saturday was, like I said, I was around downtown. I showed up around 10 a.m. and it was a noon kickoff. Just sort of wandered around with the camera, took some pictures, got accosted for taking pictures, kept taking pictures, and just wandered around, observed, did about two laps of downtown, um, met up with you, Emily, at City Hall after about the first lap. So really just observed a lot, took some pictures and wrote up the water cooler for Saturday and contributed to that article on Monday. 
I mostly just stuck around my own neighborhood, which is the Oakwood neighborhood of East Lansing, uh, kind of near the Hannah Community Center, not very far from City Hall, and just let Andrew and Emily know what I was seeing and where the police were showing up so that they could do their reporting. Um, I also did a little bit of checking in with the police, both on behalf of my neighborhood, but also understanding for Eli in terms of what the police response was going to look like. I'm going to move on to our next topic, which is the Study Committee on the Police Oversight I was wondering if either of you could give our listeners a recap of the major takeaways from that meeting. I know it was a long one, about two and a half hours. It was. And one of the big things that came out of that, I think, was this tension around the question of what role exactly the police and the police union should be playing in the recommendations that are going to go to council with regard to a possible police oversight commission. So there's a lot of tension over the question of how much should, for example, potential commissioners have to understand about policing. Um, And then, you know, a couple of folks responding in terms of, well, if potential commissioners are going to understand the culture of policing, they should also understand the culture of the people who are experiencing um, negative interactions with policing. And then some data also came out of that, which we're going to be following up on in terms of long-term data from East Lansing Police with regard to racial and ethnic makeup of the people that the police are interacting with by police-initiated stops. Yes, I know Heather's already thinking about that article. Yeah, the only thing I really have to add to that is just generally I've watched the first two meetings And I think it's just this is a massively daunting task because you're basically asking this group of people to come together digitally and meet twice a month for six months. And at the end of it, have a a pretty comprehensive recommendation to city council on how to form a new public body to independently oversee police, which is so incredibly complicated. And I think that's only just only we're only just scratching the surface of how complex this challenge is. Well, we should clarify, it's not its not even really per se oversight of the police. It's potentially a review board to look at complaints against the police very specifically. But even that becomes a rather challenging thing to wrap your head around because as one of the commissioners mentioned, you know, the complaints that we see actually come to the surface are not necessarily the extent of the complaints that exist. And so there's a challenge there, too. We should all remember that in the case, for example, of the Gacito complaint, which set off a huge firestorm of activity in East Lansing around issues of policing and questions about excessive use of force and questions about possible racial bias in policing here, that case was never actually the result of a formal complaint being filed at all. That was a complaint that was lodged on Facebook and became a sort of center of a firestorm. So the question of even what this commission should think about in terms of the complaint, should there have to be a formal complaint? Could it be an informal complaint? Could it be a series of sort of senses that people have in terms of what they're experiencing with the police? Should they deal with policy? Should they deal with training? This is a really, as Andrew said, this is a really big task and a really big issue. The group is looking towards other groups that have done this. They're looking at a group called NACOL, which actually has produced a bunch of guidelines about how to do this kind of work, but it is a really big job. Great. Thank you for that clarification, Alice. Um, Our last headline is about East Lansing Public Schools, the school board approving the plan to return to in-person instruction in January. Um, I'm the one who sat in and covered that meeting for Eli, and it was a fairly quick meeting compared to the ones we've previously had for school board, um, just a a little over an hour and a half. And the plan was approved unanimously, 
But there were kind of two interesting takeaway points from the conversations that were had. First, there were major concerns about even though the plan says in-person instruction can begin in January, it's far from a guarantee. The superintendent, Dori Lyko, and the board members said that they would be monitoring public health metrics and data, but they didn't necessarily reveal what in particular they're looking at and what benchmarks were make for something, a return to school possible or not possible, number one. And number two, there was a discussion on what should the board's leadership role look like, um, Dr. Sarah Reckow called in, and she's called in several times and voiced frustration over what she saw as the lack of leadership from the school board. Um, there was some pushback and discussion from the school board. Dr. Tara Chambers, who's vice president, said that it was the superintendent's job to be a leader. She's trained in that area of leadership where the board are elected officials who are supposed to guide and make sure that the district is hitting its goals. Chris Martin chimes in later on to say that the board can provide leadership, but it should be in conjunction with the superintendent. So it'll be interesting to see going forward, what does the relationship between superintendent and board and what does leadership look like in the school district as it returns to in-person learning? I am so thankful I do not have to go back to school these days. <laughs> yeah, it's tough because I think some families are just getting into the routine of remote and now it might change again. And it's it's confusing and difficult. Now we have an interview with Sam Hosey, president of the East Lansing Info Board of Directors, whose son Alex has reported for Eli and as an East Lansing High School student has taken an active role in local politics. Take a listen. So I'm here with uh, the chair of Eli's board of directors, Samuel Hosey, um, chair or president? <laughs> I think you could probably go either, but president, I believe, is the official title. Right. Um, so Sam is the president of Eli's board of directors, and that uh, we wanted to have him on to the pod for a quick interview today just to learn a little bit more about him and his role and the board's role in our organization and help you listeners and readers understand a little bit more about Eli. Um, so Sam, I'll start off with... Could you give me a little sort of 60-second, 30-second biography and how you ended up serving on Eli's board? Sure thing. Well, I'm a native, East Lansing native, um, graduated early 90s, um, and just kind of been close to the community, um, you know, the whole time. And um, I, I just wanted to, once we moved our kids back into the district, wanted to just uh, get a little more involved. And so... Um, Eli was just one of those organizations that I just kind of admired from afar. And then my son, uh, Alex, uh, kind of got involved in the local political scene, if you will. And um, I, I met Alice and, and um, from there, the relationship just kind of grew. And eventually she invited me to be a part of the organization. And uh, I definitely accepted. And I guess the rest is history. So I've been on the board for a couple of years now and president uh, this year I was voted in. Cool. And so what's what's the sort of obviously the board is not a, a day job. It's something that sort of gets dealt with as a as a secondary thing for the people mostly who are on it. What's sort of the normal the the normal work you do as as a board member and how often do you I just like how often do you guys meet and, and sort of handle stuff? I think that's something. 
Right. Even I, even I am not entirely certain. Of. <laughs> yeah. What do we do? Um, well, we, we meet, um, you know, every other month or as needed, um, depending on um, sort of what's happening. And and basically we are responsible for the finances and the uh, running of the organization. So there's a fiduciary responsibility um, to, you know, the donors and all those who support Eli to ensure that, um, everything that's done is above board. Um, we have a treasurer, uh, we have a vice president, um, and basically we take a look and scrutinize uh, everything from the finances to uh, what's happening with the uh, actual work and the website and ensuring that um, we're upholding the mission of the organization, and that's to provide uh, nonpartisan news coverage of the East Lansing community. And so, um, my job is to ensure kind of that things are in their place and the things that do come to me, um, you know, whether it's dealing with personnel issues or dealing with decisions that have to be made around the direction of the organization and which news stories, um, not news stories per se, but just kind of the direction to ensure that there's a balance. Um, those are the kinds of things that uh, and decisions that I, I kind of weigh in on uh, from time to time. Right. And I think an interesting one for me, and I, I, we, Alice and I talked about this on a on a Bond interview for the podcast. That you guys, one of the things you help do is respond when somebody you know attacks Eli, says X, Y, or Z um, of the Harbor Bay press conference and letter being a recent note. I guess what's what's that sort of like from a board response? Because I know we as an editorial team sort of think all right, they're saying this, what, like we think about the coverage, what's, what's that response look like from a board perspective? Well, it's funny you ask that. And, and in this particular case, um, it was, we didn't have a, a protocol in place, but now actually one has been built and we're, we've actually voted and approved on kind of uh, the means of how do we respond. Um, but in this particular case, we just took a look at the complaints and, you know, looked at them very seriously because, um, if someone has something to say about uh, the work that's being done or a story that's, you know, been written or a series that's being worked on, we, we want to hear uh, everyone out and then kind of uh, talk it over um, and just see if what is being said and done, um, you know, is above board. And um, so we had a number of discussions and uh, amongst ourselves as a board. Um, we heard from the reporters, you know, and Alice, you know, heard her perspective. And then uh, we just had several, um, you know, conversations around, okay, is, are these things valid? Are they over-exaggerated? Um, what do we feel and what do we think? And then we essentially crafted a response and everyone on the board weighed in, um, you know, just sharing a document and, and weighing in on, um, well, I don't like this, I don't like that, let's change this, let's change that, to ensure that it captured, um, you know, everyone's thoughts and feelings about it, and um, and then, you know, just a public a response to uh, the one who complained, uh, in this case, Harbor Bay, so. Last parting shot, I know you are, a, you're an MSU fan, and I know <laughs> this past weekend against Rutgers must have been a tough watch for you. I, I myself will admit that I am a Michigan fan. Both my parents are <laughs> alumni, and I grew up of the Wolverine persuasion, and so that's a, that's a big game this weekend. Can I get a prediction out of you? Oh my goodness. Um, well, <laughs> it's, it's going to be Michigan, and let me say in regards to that, because I worked, um, you know, for the State Journal and other publications, 
I got out of being a fan, uh, per se, uh, at least 20 years ago, um, you know, only because covering something, it, it, you can't really be a fan. Um, right. it, so it, it was one of those things. I, I watch games pretty dispassionately, uh, unless the Detroit Lions are playing. That is like I'm just a glutton for punishment, I guess. But uh, <laughs> but I always look, like to see uh, MSU do well. I love to see Michigan do well. The Big Ten in general. I'm more of a Big Ten fan than um, an individual school. But um, it, right now, state's rebuilding completely. Uh, I think that was kind of obvious. But um, in, in Michigan right now, they're, they're – you know, they've got better players and uh, just more stability right now. So a little continuity. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. So if, if MSU can hold it under two touchdowns, I'd be mildly surprised. I'll take it. You and my dad should get together and watch lions games. (laughs) Sam Hosey. Thank you very much for joining me for this. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks. We at Eli have paid close interest to the sensor city district, specifically the bonds used to finance the project. Currently, East Lansing's Brownfield Redevelopment Authority is trying to refinance those bonds, potentially costing the taxpayers money. To help make sense of all this, on today's East Lansing Insider, we have a feature on the Center City District bonds, including Andrew and Alice. Hello, it's Andrew Graham, Eli City Desk Editor, here with Alice Drager, our fearless executive director. Is that your title currently? Yeah, executive director and publisher and investigative reporter. Doer of many things. I'm going to be interviewing Alice right now to break down and discuss the Center City District and specifically the bonds used to finance the project. So Alice, as you said, you do some investigative reporting for us and you've covered this development in particular very extensively. Can you give me a timeline of the project and then um, explain a little bit how the financing for it works? Sure. So in early 2017, then Mayor Mark Meadows and the developers, which includes Harbor Bay Real Estate Advisors out of Illinois and Balline Management, which is local, held a press conference, announced this big project. They wanted to do a private-public partnership. It's been estimated at being worth about $125 million. It includes the building on Grand River Avenue that includes the Target on the first floor and the landmark apartments above that. And on the public land side on Albert Avenue, it includes the parking garage, the new Albert Avenue parking garage, the retail space on the front of that, and then the Newman Lofts apartments, the 55 plus apartments above that. It is the bonds we're talking about that paid mostly for that new parking garage. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. And the type of bonds used to um, make this happen is something called a non-recourse revenue bond. What that means is the bond is not secured at all by anything that's owned by the public. So it's not secured by the full faith and credit of East Lansing, and it's not secured by the parking garage itself in terms of the physical parking garage. The only thing it's secured by is the tax revenues that come off of the project from the private parts of the project. And so that's why it's called a non-recourse, because you can't come after anything if there's not enough money to pay the bond and a revenue bond, because the one thing they can come for is the tax revenues for the project. And those are limited to 30 years. And Andrew and I will be talking about whether or not the total tax cap limit that can be put to the bond is $50 million, which Mark Meadows and Ruth Beyer say it was, or $56 million, which uh, the lawyers for the BRA say it is. Yeah, and before we get in quickly to that, like that that dispute is the the first item up here. Real quickly, when you say secured, as in like the bond is secured by, you basically mean that those things are 
are effectively collateral that if something can't be paid back in the bond that the parking garage could be at risk for the city owning it or something like that. Correct. And this is a non-recourse bond. So the parking garage can't be taken away. Uh, Nothing in the city's own credit system or asset system can be taken away. This is significant to us because it limits who might be interested in buying the bonds. And that's going to be part of the story we're telling today, why it is that the developer's father ended up as the bondholder and why it is it may be difficult for the city of East Lansing to find a buyer for the refinancing bond, which is aimed at paying off the existing bond and um, rolling in a bunch of other costs. You mentioned that June 2017 meeting of, I believe it was city council or or there was a June 2017 meeting of city council, rather, you did not mention it, where a lot of this sort of was mentioned, came up, and is a good, it's a good starting point to unpack it all. And so at this meeting, I am correct, it was city council, right? Correct. Yes. Yes. So this project was introduced in at a press conference, which is very atypical, in February 2017. It then moved what in East Lansing counts as light speed and reached council decision-making in June 2017, so just a few months later, which is really unusual. And that was also when the Brownfield Redevelopment Authority, which basically handles the bond and the tax revenues, when they were voting on it too. So the key meeting we're talking about first is a June 2017 meeting, which happened on June 20th, 2017, And that's where city council, the five members of city council, um, unanimously passed a bunch of agreements, including the site plan approval, including the uh, tax capture approach, what's called a TIF plan. They also approved uh, the master development agreement, which was the agreement between the city and the developer and the downtown development authority and the Brownfield Redevelopment Authority on how this whole project would work. And at that meeting that dispute of 50 million versus 56 million actually inadvertently came up, although we didn't know it at the time. Um, so I'm gonna, we're going to play you a clip here quickly of Lori Mullins, who was then um, an economic development administrator for the city of East Lansing, saying at that meeting that the, the tax increment financing, um, the money that can be captured to pay back the bond, would be capped at $50 million. Yeah, so what you're going to hear Lori saying is that she's first going to refer to a number that's about $58 million, and that's the amount that was approved in the whole Brownfield TIF plan, the tax capture plan by the Brownfield Redevelopment Authority. But then she's going to go on and say something really interesting, which is, in fact, what the city council was passing that night took a haircut on that plan and reduced it to only $50.2 million. Between your packets is Brownfield Plan 24 and the revised um, resolution related to that plan. The properties qualify as a brownfield because some of them are a facility, meaning that the soil is contaminated. The total investment in the project is $125 million, and um, together with the cost of all the eligible expenses, the interest contingency, brownfield administration fee, and state revolving loan fund, the total that is included in the Brownfield plan is $58,396,973. The um, resolution that you have attached, as well as the development agreement, limit the amount that can be captured further. And, um, and so it's limited to 
only what is included in the bonds and um, for financing of those public improvements, and that's the um, approximately $50.2 million. So the brownfield revenue bonds that have been discussed already would be payable solely from the tax increment revenue, and um, the developer would be responsible for any shortfall. Our bond council, uh, Bill Dan Hoff, is here this evening and able to answer questions as well. And I'll tell you, a lot of us missed that. We did not report at the time that the tax increment financing cap was $50.2 million because we totally missed what happened at that meeting, and apparently so did our bond lawyer. Yeah, and later in that meeting, Bill Danoff of Miller Canfield, um, who was the, the bond attorney for the city of East Lansing, said that the cap was $56 million, which is a position that he and Miller Canfield still hold. Once we see where interest rates are at the time, once we see where the tax increment capture is going to be, and uh, you know what type of credit uh, rating, if any, is going to be uh, related to these bonds, uh, all that will be determined in the future. And those variables will determine how much in principle can be borrowed uh, against the uh, total tax capture of $55 million. This is super interesting because it occurs just a moment after Lori makes her statement to the council. So at the very end of Lori's statement, she says, and Mr. Danhoff is here to answer any questions you have. And at that very moment, Bill Danhoff comes forward. So there's no gap in the amount of time between Lori Mullins saying it's a $50 million cap and Bill Danhoff getting up and referring to a $56 million cap. But it certainly appears that Danhoff was not aware of the document that had been changed right before this meeting, a thing called the authorizing resolution for the tax capture. And what that did, Ruth Beyer apparently was the person who changed it and council voted through the change version. What that did was put that haircut on and limit it to $50.2 million. And we should explain why they took that haircut. So basically what happened was there were a bunch of costs written into the TIF plan. You have to, when you pass a TIF plan, indicate which eligible expenses will be paid. And the city council decided, because they were under a lot of pressure from the public to stop giving away money to developers from tax incentives, the city council decided to very, very strict, strictly limit the tax capture to only be used to pay for public infrastructure and a little bit of environmental cleanup on the site. And the consequence is they basically threw out a whole bunch of private development costs and a bunch of soft costs. And so they really super strictly limited what the taxes could be used for. And this is where the dispute arises from. So the question is, is there really a cap of $50 million on the tax capture or is there really a limit of $56 million? And that difference is enormous. It's not just a $6 million difference. It's a difference having to do with what you can pack into a bond or a new refinancing bond and what you're allowed to pay out of it. So one of the things Mark Meadows has been saying is that you can throw all you want into this bond, but there's a limit to what it can be paid back in terms of the tax use. So basically what he's saying is that you can write lots of paper and say- Well, and I wanted to ask you- Yeah. You've done a lot of reporting and analysis on this, Alice, and there are two former mayors that agree with each other and the interpretation of it being $50 million, like Lori Mullins had said. But obviously, Miller Canfield, Bill Danoff, the bond attorney, say it's $56 million, as have the developers. So I basically want to ask, is, this, is, this, are, is anybody wrong here or is this an open legal question? Um, How is it sort of proceeding forward? It is definitely an open legal question. So, I mean, Mark Meadows feels it's not really an open legal question because the city council has the power to reduce 
the amount of TIF capture. And I, he's absolutely right about that. The Miller Canfield folks, the bond attorneys for the city, are basically making the argument that Meadows just doesn't understand, that city council might have had the power to do this, but they didn't do so clearly, and therefore they don't really have a $50 million cap. Um, they're making the argument that it should have always been $56 million. But one thing we have to recognize here is that Miller Canfield is at some level defending what Miller Canfield did. And one of the things that Miller Canfield failed to do is make sure that all the documents matched. I mean, I think it's fair for me to say that. And certainly George Lahanis has said that at city council. He said it on July 14th of this year that the paperwork doesn't match. So some of the paperwork legitimately refers to a $50.2 million cap roughly. And a lot of the other paperwork refers to a $56 million cap. Some of the paperwork got changed along the way as it was being passed. It's a really complicated legal question at this point. And it's not, by the way, the only legal question that exists around these bonds. It's just the most significant one in terms of the sheer number. It is the quite literally $6 million yes, question. Yes, it is. And both Bayer and um, Mark Meadows, former Mayor Ruth Bayer and Mark Meadows have been vocal both when they were in council and Meadows a little bit since about defending that $50 million cap. Um, I'll play you two clips now. One of Bayer saying to George Lahanis to defend that cap during the meeting she resigned that July 14th meeting and following that immediately will be a clip of Mark Meadows from the same meeting in which he also resigned saying the same thing. Uh, my only comment to you, Councilmember Babcock, is um, next, or I think it's this week, Councilmember Meadows is representing us uh, in the B BRA meeting and um, I fully agree and I am saying this publicly so that Mr. Lahanis also hears that the limit is $50 million. So if there are if there are documents that disagree with each other, that's the one that uh, we can stick to, regardless of what our bond council says. All right, let me you know, just say a couple of things. Uh, maybe this um, would answer a little bit of what Lisa had had asked. Yes, you know, I, I guess you could make the argument that uh, including costs that by contract, by agreement, are to wait till the end to be paid, if at all. So what the deal was is that, yeah, if there are overages, they're going to be put to the end of this. They are going to earn interest, but they can only be paid if there's TIF left over, you know, if there's a, an amount of TIF. And what happened here was that the city council, in passing its resolution approving um, uh, Brownfield Plan number 24, said, we're approving this Brownfield Plan except that we're only allowing the costs, the eligible costs to be those costs which relate to public infrastructure that are contained in a specific document exhibit in to the, to the master development agreement. And that document lists the cost. It does not include paying the, the developers, uh, bond council and other attorneys their fees. And so that is the matter of dispute here. There was a subsequent approval of a bond that included those uh, payments, but our um, approval also limited the TIF to uh, around $50 million, which is the exact amount that was necessary to pay off our cost. So what they're really trying to do is get around the fact that there's a limit on the, on 
the amount of the TIF that is available to pay any expenses, and uh, it is unlikely, although I think because of the increase in the value of this property, way more valuable than we thought it was going to be, uh, that TIF will probably, we probably would be able to pay off some of their overages with the remaining TIF. But at this point in time, there's no reason to change the deal. What they want is they want to change a deal that they signed on to, uh, and the BRA doesn't have the authority to change that deal. Only we do. That's my position. Yes, and I, I think that's significant that the two of them both said it so very clearly on the record and basically gave George Lahanas, the city manager, an order to defend that cap. Lahanas has not been doing that, frankly, nor has now Mayor Aaron Stevens in any obvious way. In fact, they've been voting through, because they're members of the Brownfield Redevelopment Authority, they've been vote, voting through a bond resolution that assumes a $56 million cap. And I think there's a really good question here. Why are they not defending the $50 million cap? Part of the answer is their lawyers telling them, right, that it's a $56 million cap, but... Right. Is Lahanis a voting member of the BRA, or is it just Stevens? Yes, Lahanis is a voting member of the BRA. It, he doesn't have okay. to be, according to state statute, but the city has chosen to make him that, and the city also has the mayor okay. as a voting member of the BRA. So those are two people among, I think it's 10 or 11, who are voting through documents that assume that Miller Canfield's reading is correct. And again, Miller Canfield has an interest in reading it the way Miller Canfield is reading it. If Miller Canfield is wrong and it really was a $50 million cap, then Miller Canfield produced a bunch of paperwork that was incorrect. And that is extremely significant because we're talking about an original $25 million bond. So Miller Canfield is a bit in a corner here. And as several people said to me cynically yesterday in response to my reporting of the latest batch, Miller Canfield is being paid with East Lansing's money to defend Miller Canfield. A lot of us thought when uh, the chair of the BRA, DDA, Peter Dewan, last week said that he was asking council to weigh in, we thought he meant the new city attorney, which is Foster Swift, but he simply meant he was asking Miller Canfield again. And it's hardly a surprise that Miller Canfield keeps defending what Miller Canfield did in 2017. Meadows says Miller Canfield did it wrong. And part of what Miller Canfield says in their new memo is, well, Mark Meadows voted on some of the paperwork that said $56 million. And that's absolutely true. Mark Meadows did, in fact, vote on some of the paperwork that says $56 million. But Mark Meadows, I think, reasonably responds, well, you were our lawyer and you were supposed to get this right. And so he's um, understandably pointing to them and saying, why didn't you get the paperwork right in 2017? So the paperwork was handled both by Miller Canfield and also Tom Yaden from the McGinty firm, who were fired on that day, July 14th, that Meadows and Beyer also resigned and all of this sort of blew up. What a twisted web we weave. So despite insistence um, from the people who helped write this deal that the TIF cap is in fact lower than what Miller Canfield has said is, said it is, the Brownfield Redevelopment Authority is currently going ahead with refinancing the bond under the impression that it is both a $56 million cap and that they are at risk of default, which they were told, I believe, in late September for the first time. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, Alice? Yeah, this is a really surprising part of it, too. So on September 24th, the BRA was suddenly advised by in following its new financial advisor finally being brought on board, PFM, 
they were told they were at risk of default because there's this payment due now to the bondholder on December 1st, 2020, which is the first payment due. And it's supposed to be for about $3.7 million. And the tax capture so far has been significantly less than that. It's only been about $1.3 million. That means the BRA is facing a gap of about $2.4 million of a payment it's supposed to make on December 1st. However, are they really in default? Well, now Miller Canfield's latest memo points out what Meadows has been saying, which is the bond is written such that the default doesn't really occur, legally speaking, as long as the BRA is turning over the taxes to the trustee account to pay whatever it can. And so even though they're short $2.4 million, according to the paperwork, they're not actually in default legally. The other thing the paperwork says that's so fascinating is that if there's a shortfall when a payment is due, it's not the BRA that has to scramble to make up the payment. It's the developer. So it's the developers, Harbor Bay and Balline Management, who actually have to pony up $2.4 million. Now, the paperwork says they'll get paid back later when the taxes start rolling in more significantly. But they're the ones who are supposed to be sent a notice saying, hey, you have to pay up. And here's where we come to the real twist in the tale that you know, Andrew, and our regular readers know. The bondholder is not some bank out there. It's not some, you know, independent investor. Which the city was told it would be most likely. The city was absolutely told by Miller Dan, uh, sorry, by Miller Canfield's Bill Danhoff that that's what they were expecting, a sophisticated independent investor. The investor turned out to be a company owned by Mark Bell's father. Mark Bell is the lead developer. He's the CEO of Harbor Bay Real Estate. When they presented this bondholder in a meeting in late 2017, I had never heard of this company, Scottsdale Capital. And to be frank, the the letterhead looked weird to me. It did not look like normal letterhead. It looked like the kind of letterhead that somebody just makes up one morning using Microsoft Word. So I started scrambling trying to find corporate records on this before I went over to the meeting at City Hall. And what I found looking it up was that, in fact, Illinois corporate records showed that the owner of this company was Peter Paul Bell. And that turned out to be the father of Mark Bell. So when I showed up at this meeting and spoke at public comment, one of the things I said is, are you all aware this is Mark Bell's father? And I remember several faces in the room kind of dropped like, holy crap, what are we doing? And the reason it was Mark Bell's father is because nobody could find an investor who was willing to buy this bond, not because at that point any of us knew about the confusion with regard to the cap. None of us really knew at that point that there was this major point of confusion, but because it didn't look like there might be enough money to ultimately capture in taxes to pay back an investor. So it it was a weak bond in terms of going out into the bond market. It was a no recourse revenue bond. The revenues were uncertain at that point, and there were not a lot of investors interested. So why now do we need to pay back the investor? Well, interestingly, we don't have to. As I keep checking with the city to ask whether or not Scottsdale Capital, Bell Sr., has in fact asked to be paid back. And so far, they've not actually asked to be paid back. The city is now trying to do a refinance of the bond in part because they have this gap in the payment, although that's supposed to be paid by Mark Bell, weirdly enough, to his own father's company. And the BRA is also trying to do a refinance because they had always planned at this point to do a refinance and to um, shift it over. The first bond was supposed to act something like a construction loan, which you would then refinance after the building was built. The whole thing is pretty damn curious at this point. 
Maybe Peter Paul Bell can just withhold his son's allowance until he's made up the $2.4 million. And a really interesting aspect to me, and perhaps maybe just the most how the hell did that happen aspect, is Bill Danoff at that 2017 council meeting where he referred to the $56 million cap as opposed to a $50 million cap, also said that the bond would need a debt service reserve fund, which is basically a little pile of cash that you stow away to make sure that you can make the first payment if the taxes aren't captured to the level you anticipate. And he said explicitly that these bonds need that, but there isn't one. Certainly, if for some reason in one year there was a shortfall, let's say $100,000, we would take that money out of the debt service reserve fund and pay the bondholders. And then in subsequent years, you try and recapture that 100000 from future revenue. And the money that goes into the debt service reserve fund, is that money that is excess tax increment revenue that is captured? I think it's proposed to be borrowed money. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. I'm sorry. Go ahead. A couple of follow-up questions on that point. So suppose that there's no money in in the debt. Uh, the debt reserve fund initially, or let's assume that there isn't, and there's a shortfall of tax increment revenue in a given year, what happens then? No, we'd, we make sure there's money in that reserve fund I up see. front. So some of the money from the, the bond proceeds? Bond proceeds or some of the tax capture you might have already received. Something needs to fund that up. Got it. Uh, a revenue bond needs a debt service reserve. And that really is a big question in the whole thing. And I sent Miller Canfield a question this week in writing for Eli's reporting, the question, why did Bill Danhoff say so explicitly in 2017 that there would need to be a debt service reserve fund, yet he didn't write one into this bond? And when I talk to the folks who are our quiet uh, helpers in town, people who, well, not just in town, but people who do municipal finance, bond work, legal work around this stuff, who've been helping me go through this paperwork and understand it, what they tell me is they firmly believe the reason there was no debt service reserve fund set up, the reason there was no capitalized interest set up, in other words, money, like you said, stuck in the bank, ready to help with gaps that might occur in the payments. The reason that wasn't set up is because the Bells were, in fact, the bond investors, and they couldn't take the risk of throwing yet more money and parking it for three years when they needed it for other projects. So if there had been a debt service reserve fund, it would have meant that Bell Sr. had to pony up a few million dollars extra to make sure there was a safety cushion in the system. And why would he pony up a few million extra and park it for that safety thing when he was basically the one at risk and the, the ironically, his son was the one who was going to have to pay it anyway if there was a gap? So there was no debt service reserve fund set up and Miller Canfield didn't set one up. And that's why now there's If there's not a legal risk of default, there's at least a payment risk of default. In other words, it may be true that the paperwork says there's no legal risk of default here, but there definitely is a risk that the BRA is facing in terms of facing a $2.4 million shortfall on December 1st. If they can't refinance this bond before then and fix that, they're at least going to be stuck in the position of then legally having to go to HBBM, the developer's um, LLC, which is a combination of Harbor Bay and Balline Management, and tell them, write a check for $2.4 million so that we can cover the shortfall. That will be an interesting happening if it does happen. It's also worth adding, I think, that this this development, not from a financing and bond refinancing and repayment perspective recently, has also been 
in the news in Eli for the the dispute over 55 plus um and they've been talking about the developers namely Mark Bell and Steve Willoughby also of Harbor Bay talking about how because of COVID they've had lower occupancy rates and that's affected you know the the tax revenues captured and stuff like that so I think it's also worth just worth noting generally that beyond the oddities of the refinancing and Bell, younger Bell being on the hook for 2.4 million to elder Bell that also they have been in the news about trying to remove the 55 plus restriction on Newman lofts and actually just renting to people under 55 illegally anyways. Um, so this, this whole development from top to bottom has had a lot of issues and it's only been open for about a calendar year now. Indeed. And one of the things that Harbor Bay has been sort of, um, you know, shaking a fist at the city about is the question of the tax value of Newman Lofts. Part of what they're interested in trying to do is to get the tax value lowered on Newman Lofts under the claim it's very difficult to rent to 55 plus. If they do manage to convince the tax assessor, David Lee, to reduce the tax value of that property, what that's going to do is drop the amount of tax capture possible in the next 30 years. And so that's going to impact whether or not they can refinance the bond, because if the taxes coming from this project turn out to be less than expected because they reduce the taxes coming from Newman Lofts, what ends up happening is it becomes harder to refinance the bond. And so this is really complicated at that point. At that point, you have the question of what's in the BRA's best interest, what's in the city's best interest. Uh, Certainly Bell Sr., I think, probably wants this bond refinanced so that they can free up their $25 million in capital that they put up for this bond. But if they want to get it refinanced, then trying to get the taxes lowered on Newman Lofts is not a great way to do it because it's going to worry investors who are going to think, well, if I buy this and the taxes are going to go down, the odds of my getting paid back are going to go down. Well, and just even with the way it's set up with shortfalls in payments, if Mark Bell and Harbor Bay get the tax assessment lowered so less fewer taxes are captured and the, the money in the trust to pay back the bond goes down, that's just likely to leave another shortfall, which who was responsible for Harbor Bay BM. So really, Absolutely. they would theoretically and, just be screwing themselves out of more money. And you really have to wonder whether or not they understand that, to be perfectly frank. So some of the letters they produce, I read and I think, oh my God, even they don't understand this deal. Like there are parts of this deal they don't even seem to understand. I'm not sure they knew until recently, until Mark Meadows brought it to everybody's attention, that in fact, HBBM is responsible for the bond shortfalls when the payments are due. I don't know if they knew that. And if they did know that, did they understand that lowering the taxes screws them in two ways. It screws them in terms of the payment shortfall problem, and it screws them in terms of trying to find an investor for the refinance bond, which is necessary for the Bells to free up their capital to do other projects. Right. And on the topic of Mark Meadows, I wanted to bring up some the the letter he sent to Peter Dewan, the, the chair of the DDA, um, also to, I believe, Jim Kroom, who is on the DDA, and Mayor Aaron Stevens and uh, city attorney or I can't remember. There were there was one other party involved, but it is he pretty... sent it to the mayor, the city manager, Peter Dewan, right. and also Jim Kroom, who's the vice chair of the DDA and BRA. The reason he sent it to Dewan and Kroom is because the BRA took a vote on September 24th, authorizing Kroom and Dewan to sign off on the new bonds. 
So what he's doing is warning them that if they sign off on this and they screw it up, that they could be personally liable. And I'll read you that little bit. He says, if the refinancing bond goes out without an explanation of the limitations I have mentioned, you and the BRA, thus the city, may be found liable, notwithstanding the non-recourse nature of the bonds. In other words, screw this up and you could get sued. And that has to give them all pause, I would think. Right. And this letter, this letter was pretty, pretty hot, like just in general, like a, a scorcher of a letter from Mark Meadows. Um, I, I suggest anyone listening to this try and check out Alice's latest reporting on it on EastLansingInfo.news. And read the letter. I mean, yeah. it's got, it's also got lines yeah. like this from Mark Meadows, quote, since our bond council was in the room when the council decision was announced, it would seem that he would have had a duty to advise the council that there was conflicting language in the development agreement at that time. He did not so advise, unquote. I mean, Meadows really lets loose in this latest letter. He, he also says in his letter that if the claim is being made that the council sort of sneakily pushed through the $50 million cap when nobody was looking, that this is sort of suggesting that the council was playing dirty tricks. And this is what Meadows says about that. Quote, the council has been accused of many things, but this kind of duplicity has not occurred in the 30 years I have been associated with the city, unquote. So Meadows is really fighting back Strong. and trying to do the protection of that cap. That July 15th, 2020 meeting of the BRA was very full of news if you knew to look for it because it was the day after Bayer and Meadows resigned from the BRA or um, from council rather and that meant Aaron Stevens was taking Meadows place I believe at the BRA that day and they voted to was that the vote to rescind the refinancing from the previous week or did am I off by a week but it was it no, was hot, and Mark so Mark Bell said he was insulted in that meeting. I believe by notions that the developers were sort of acting with a an air of impropriety. Yeah. So July 9th, uh, the the BRA voted through a bonding resolution for thirty three million dollars, up to eight percent. Blah blah blah. And I, there were so many things problematic in that move. But the most problematic thing from the point of view of a lot of people paying attention was that during that meeting, the city and the BRA had no financial advisor. The only financial advisor in the room was Brian Leffler from Robert W. Baird and Company. And during the meeting of July 9th, Leffler didn't make clear that he was working for the developer, but he just kept telling the BRA pass this bonding resolution because in the long run, we're going to save you money. In the long run, it'll save money. In the long run, it'll save money. Of course, the BRA sees him and thinks, okay, this guy's telling us we should save money, so we should vote this through. Well, <laughs> at after the vote went through on July 9th, at the very end of a meeting that went almost three hours, Jim Croom, and let me be honest, Jim Croom responding to a text I sent to him saying, ask Leffler who he's working for, asked Leffler on the tape, in the meeting, who are you working for? And Kroom knew the answer, but maybe the other people in the room didn't know the answer. And the answer came, I'm working for the developers. Go ahead, Brian. Yeah. Sure. Thank you. So uh, I cannot, uh, under the rules of our industry, I can't, you cannot rely on me having a fiduciary duty to the BRA. So that is very, that's, that's a good point to make out. Uh, the BRA is certainly welcome to have a uh, municipal advisor on your side in 
in terms of reviewing the transactions and the different term sheets. Um, but that would also have to be another cost that would have to be negotiated and put in, on top of the transaction. So yeah, you can certainly do that. Um, and that's, that's, uh, I'm comfortable with that. I just can't serve as, I can't serve two masters, so to speak. That's just not allowed in their industry. And there was a question, why doesn't the city and the BRA have a financial advisor in the room telling them whether or not they agree that this will save us money? Why are we taking the developer's word for it when they have a lot to gain from this particular type of refinance? So then the BRA came back a week later to rescind the bond and to vote to get a financial advisor. And it was July 14th, Tuesday night, when Bayer and Meadows said to Lahanis, defend the $50 million cap. Meadows was supposed to show up at the BR the next day. Then the other three members of council, Mayor Aaron Stevens, Jesse Gregg, and Lisa Babcock, fired the city attorney, terminated his contract. In response to that, Meadows, a buyer suddenly resigned. Then Meadows suddenly resigned, basically leaving a council of three and leaving uh, Aaron Stevens sort of accidentally the mayor because he had been the mayor pro tem. So he, under the law, becomes the mayor. So Stevens became the mayor. The next day, the BRA still had to go on with the show. The show was convened. Now, instead of Mark Meadows being there because Mark Meadows had resigned from council, it's Aaron Stevens, who frankly doesn't know a lot about this stuff. But the BRA did, in fact, vote to rescind and to hire a financial advisor. So then the city, the BRA went forward and the BRA ended up hiring a company called PFM. And what happened? But PFM turned right around and said, well, besides having us in this deal, we need to pay Brian Leffler for this deal because he knows where everything is. He knows how this whole thing is supposed to work and he knows where the investor might be. And a lot of us watching this just at that point slapped our heads because last time around, Leffler was paid, I think, $140,000 to find an investor. Who did he find? Mark Bell's dad. How hard was that to find? <laughs> <laughs> and now this time, Leffler's coming back around, again working for them, again poised to be paid with public money for what? Well, a lot of us think he may find Mark Bell's father again as the only investor. We don't know. But in any case, what are we paying PFM for? What are we paying PFM $47,500 for when they haven't seemed to do very much in terms of the refinancing other than to recommend they that the BRA also pay Brian Leffler, which, by the way, is a guy that it looks like often works with PFM. We know that it, he was at least not clear at that meeting who he was working for until asked after the vote, which made a lot of people very uncomfortable. By the way, Leffler was the only financial advisor in the room in 2017 when the original bond went through, too. And I thought he was the advisor for the city because he often that company often works for the city. But it turns out he wasn't working for the city. It's only when the bond final paperwork became available to us in the Freedom of Information Act that I saw that Leffler had been paid and paid specifically as an advisor to the developer, not as an advisor to the BRA. So the city and the BRA had no financial advisor for a $25 million bond. And when I asked George Lahanis recently, why did you do that? The response was, well, it wasn't that complicated a deal. Well, as it turns out, it is that complicated a deal. One more thing I want to add, if the city and the BRA had had a financial advisor in 2017 to help structure these bonds, it's entirely possible they would have discovered the $50 million versus $56 million gap, and they might have brought it to our attention then, and we might have fixed this whole problem then. 
it's entirely possible that this whole issue would have been averted if we had had a financial advisor looking carefully at the paper. It's hard to say it would have been any worse than it is. So touching on some odds and ends and just things that we have have discovered and found interesting odd, but maybe not entirely newsworthy in their own right about this deal, these companies and the people involved. The first one I want to get to, Alice, is you were, I believe you were, were taking your son back to back to college when you went down and saw the offices for Harbor Bay in Illinois. Is that, am I correct? That was why you were in the area? You are correct. Um, my son goes to University of Chicago, and so we were headed back to Chicago to get him back to school. And I said to him, well, hell, while we're here and we've got the car, let's drive away and see the offices of Harbor Bay, which... I had discovered, you know, it was also the legal office of Scottsdale Capital, although that hadn't been clear when the company had been brought forward as a so-called independent investor to the BRA back in 2017. So my son was driving and I was using Google Maps to navigate. It's about an hour northwest of downtown Chicago, and it's an industrial park kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's a bunch of one-story buildings that have like you know, loading docks and storage areas for retail companies. I think Pier, the local Pier 1 had a storage area there. A bunch of other companies had storage there. And so we drive up to this building. It's a little one-story industrial complex, small office. And on the name of the door is not Harbor Bay Real Estate or Scottsdale Capital. It's the name of one of the oldest of the Bell companies. I think it's called First Realty. And so... The, the office for this company doing, you know, many hundreds of millions of dollars in deals around the country turns out to be a little um, tiny office that appeared to be unstaffed in the middle of nowhere. Um, you know, does a developer's office need a big office somewhere? Probably not, because a lot of the stuff they're doing, you know, they're doing remotely even when there's not a pandemic. That said, all of the developers I've ever dealt with have real offices in real places. And so that was kind of surprising to me that I would come upon this place and it would be well, quite so unimpressive. I've seen I've seen the pictures of the building, which I believe are in an Eli story. And it looks it's the sort of place that you'd expect to be like near and like off an airport service road where you like buy like hydraulic parts for like heavy machinery or something like it just looks exactly like you something got it. that's exactly that Exactly. What and it so it's not, like. it's nothing impressive. And I, you're right that I don't, I mean, you can do most of what Mark Bell and Harbor Bay does from your living room with a laptop. But I do agree with you that most, most people who do millions of dollars of development tend to try and have a real office just for professional appearances sakes. And the last thing I think it's worthwhile touching on and something that we try not to advertise too much but it is worth mentioning that through all this in august as the developers were publicly asking for the 55 plus restriction to be removed while they were already legally violating it they launched an attack ad on eli spent money on facebook advertising and such and convened I, a press conference to convene a press conference it was part of it. it was most of the press conference they were talking about removing the 55 restriction and then actually like a majority of the time was just about how Eli is dangerous activists because we pay attention. but And then my whole staff wanted t-shirts that said dangerous activists. Still, it, Christmas is just around the corner. <laughs> and I just think it's worth mentioning that we don't, like we, we take these things seriously, but we don't, we're not perturbed, we're not put off by them. Um, and it tends to inform us 
that we are probably doing a pretty good job of paying attention to what's going on and that, you know, we're not, if you're a good news organization, you're probably not friends with the, the big developers in town all the time. And so I think it's just from my perspective, that's not something that would ever, ever deter us. And at this point we find it a little bit comical too. You know, I have to say the big developers are all used to us poking and prodding and asking uncomfortable questions and digging up histories and dragging stuff forward and all of that. None of them have ever done the extraordinary thing that Harbor Bay and Boeing management did in terms of organizing this expensive attack on Eli. And also we should point out, not just did that, but wrote to our board of directors with a so-called ethics complaint, complained to the Institute for Nonprofit News, of which we are a proud member, complained to Lion Publishers, local independent online publishers, of which we are a proud member, filed formal complaints against our industry groups about us. And um, we take this kind of thing very seriously, but you know, why? Why do they need to do this? The fact is, if they've got a deal that's worth defending, let them defend it on the merits. If they've got an argument worth making, let them make the argument on the merits. Um, this is an extraordinary group of developers. Uh, I have to say, I've never seen another group of developers behave this way. And not just in terms of that, but just in terms of the, I'm just going to say, the amateur hour kind of approach that occurred from the beginning of this throughout it that, to my mind, threw up red flags in 2017. And I was one of the people bringing those red flags into the public eye, saying there are some really strange things about the way this thing is going down that does not feel like what you expect a $125 million deal to look like. And should add, amidst all that, that despite all of the accusations being thrown towards Eli, not once has Harbor Bay or any of its representatives requested a correction for any factual information. So That's right. That's right. To my knowledge, if we, something you know, is wrong, we're glad to correct it. I will tell you there. So there are two corrections we've made on the stories, the over, I think, 150 stories, mostly I've written on this development project. One of them was after the 2017 bond materials became available to me through the Freedom of Information Act, I discovered that a whole bunch of people had been paid out of the original bond. That included Brian Leffler from Baird. That included... Um, us, for some reason, paying the developer's attorney, Dyka Magasset, over $300,000 in public, what I thought was public money, out of the bond, paying Miller Canfield, which that one I expected, out of the bond, et cetera, et cetera. So when I saw that we had paid the developer's father an origination fee, we'd paid the developer's lawyers, we'd paid the developer's financial advisors, I wrote a piece saying that tax money, $700,000 in tax money was being used to pay the developer's team for private expenses. And Mark Meadows objected to it. And I did not understand at the time Mark Meadows' objection. Now I understand Mark Meadows' objection to it. Mark Meadows said, has said since, that the way the TIF plan was written, none of that stuff can be paid back with taxes. None of those Payments out of the original bond are legal to be paid out of with taxes. So I have since corrected that to say that if Meadows is right, they paid that stuff out of the original bond, but it can't be reimbursed with taxes because there's no authorization to reimburse it with taxes. The other thing we corrected was last Friday, I produced a report saying that Foster Swift would be taking a fresh set of legal eyes and throwing them on this whole deal but it turns out that's not what Peter Dewan meant. He meant he was just asking Miller Canfield again. So our report this week on Monday begins with the word correction and says there will not be a fresh set of legal eyes on this, unfortunately. 
it's just Miller Canfield again defending Miller Canfield's work. Yeah, and we we want to be transparent when we get things wrong because we're humans too. But it's ultimately about being right, and that's also why we do this long podcast talking about the twenty five million dollar bond that's got a lot of red flags and concerning disputes going on because we think you, the public, deserve to know about it. I think we've we've talked enough here now for today, though, and I'm going to I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you, Alice, for for joining me to do this. And I think talking about a very interesting and important ongoing issue for the city of East Lansing. It is not often that Eli has the opportunity to potentially save the people of East Lansing six million dollars. We are honored to have that opportunity. We are trying to, before the end of the year, raise what Eli needs to exist next year, which is about $200,000. If you feel grateful and want to have this work keep going, you can email me at alice at eastlansinginfo.news. That's alice at eastlansinginfo.news and make a pledge. We're looking for core donors right now to get our match base up high as we go out and ask for local matches and you can help us with this work. We don't survive on taxes. (laughs) We save taxes where we can, but we operate on reader donors donations. So if you are able in a financial position where you can help us keep this kind of work going, keep our reporting on the center city district project going for another year, we need you now. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today and for listening to our news updates and features and interviews. Don't forget to check out all of our coverage at eastlansinginfo.news and to subscribe to this podcast.